So, firstly, conversation. Monday morning, hot chocolate, 9.05, school run done. I'm sat down in Cafe Nero. A friend says something, I paraphrase to make it a little bit shorter, something like this. I'm not a bad person. And, uh, you know, if God exists, slightly cynical about that, um, then he will accept me to a degree. Oh, and if hell exists, uh, well, that will just be for a time. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll accept that if necessary. But it will be for a time, and after a while, God's love will overwhelm that. And he'll think I'm all right, and we'll all be fine in the end. That was the conversation. And that kind of thinking is really prevalent in our culture. You will hear it, and you will need to respond to it with grace and respect. Uh, 1 Peter 3, we're going to look at it later. It says, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for your faith, but with graciousness and respect. And that kind of view that I've just shared has been around for many, many years. It was there in the early church. It's been around for centuries and centuries throughout church history. Sometimes it's referred to as kind of a, a universal view of God, a, a universalism. It suggests that all people will eventually be saved by God. And it looks, that kind of view looks to the Bible and it sees various passages where it says Christ died for all. Yeah, you know those passages, Christ died for all. And when referring to that, they are looking and saying, well, they're not looking to the context which suggests that Christ died for all without distinction, that is Jew and Gentile. They're missing that point and they're saying, oh, if Christ died for all, it must be all without exception. That is every single person that has ever lived on this earth. So they're taking it out of context, but they're saying Christ died for all. Also people like my friend think that any kind of punishment that from God will be as they look at the justice system today. That is, punishment is remedial in our, in our justice system. That is, it will only be there to teach the person a lesson. So it is corrective, yeah? That's what our, our judicial system is there for. And therefore they look, if the person is changed, have a bit of punishment for a while, um, if they're then changed, oh, well... That is it. They'll be fine then with God. The punishment cannot be eternal. But the Bible continually says, God says continually to his people, I will repay. That begins right back in Deuteronomy 32 verse 35. And it's repeated all over the Old Testament. Psalm 94 for example, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hebrews 10 quotes um, Deuteronomy as well in that Romans 2 verse 6, you were looking at that in your Bible studies just a few weeks ago. Similar kind of thing. And it kind of finds its completion in Revelation 2 verse 23. And there in John's vision it says, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. See, God's justice is not just restorative, remedial in that way. It is at, that's actually his fatherly loving discipline. That's a different matter completely. God's justice is right it is measured, it is just by nature, and it is retributive. He says, I will repay. And if the eternal God says, I will repay, that is an eternal punishment. My friend also thinks that God's grace can never be limited. You hear what I said in that kind of conversation? You know, saying... We all deserve it to a, you know, to a degree, a little bit. 
But we know that's not true. We've been looking at it in Romans 3, haven't we? None of us reach God's standards. We all fall short. None of us are deserving of God's grace. That is grace. It's undeserved kindness. Yeah, God is patient, but when, when does his patience kind of run out? And he can maintain his justice. When's the point that you've kind of got to cut that off? He can't be indifferent about his justice. No, that is the kind of thinking that is around us all the time. People always think that God in the end will kind of, yeah, come on, come in, doesn't matter, you know, no, no, no problem what you've done, all in the end you can come in. He will universally love us, accept us and take us all to heaven. Now that's one end of the spectrum. A number of my friends will think that, and I guess a number of your friends will too. Now, but it's interesting, what we have in the Old Testament, the, the, the people of God there, Israel is, is right on the other end of the spectrum, isn't it? See, the Jews had turned the idea of God's grace towards them and their election, you know, into kind of an idea of an exclusive ethnic privilege, just for them. Thank you very much. Not for all, just for us. And they saw God's purposes just being exclusively for this small bunch of people in this small place. But God had never been like that. And here's the promise. Even back in Genesis 12 with Abraham, God had promised as that three-part covenant that he had promised that he would bless all the nations of the earth. Everyone. And though the old covenant people of God had done everything they possibly could to ignore that universal scope of the, of the gospel reaching all the nations, God now in Christ makes that covenant promise clear. And he begins to work in and through the apostles to demonstrate that, that he can be trusted in those covenant promises. And that's what we, Acts is all about. Especially in these chapters that we're looking at today. For here we're, we're beginning to see and discover the true scope of the gospel. It is for all nations. And that is, if you like, true universalism. The universal scope of the gospel is that it's going to go to every nation. In the world, not to all people, and all people will be saved, but it's going to go to every nation. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. I want to flick forward just a moment, very briefly. I don't normally do this, but Revelation 7 verse 9 says this. You can flick there if you'd like to. Last book of the Bible. Because that's, if you like, where we see this, this promise of God formulated in, in Genesis 12 with Abraham... Worked out in history here, beginning so, in Acts. This is where we see it come to its finality, okay? Its final moments. Revelation 7 verse 9 says this. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, <coughs> tribe, people and language. Standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. See, what we have here in Acts is, if you like, the historic record of how God works through means, through his apostles, through people, <coughs> to fulfill that covenant promise that began in Genesis 12 and finds its end in Revelation 7. And last week we saw that God, that he could not be stopped in his sovereign work. And that work of <coughs> preaching this message, this saving message of new life, he could not be stopped preaching the gospel. And he will continue to do it despite all the circumstances we put in, the, in his way. 
And what we will see today is that the good news of God that brings salvation, it is for the sinner who repents. And that is regardless of where they're from. Regardless of what nation they're from, their ethnicity, the good news of God that brings salvation is for the one who repents, regardless of their ethnicity. We see this firstly being worked out in the life of one man, and he's called Cornelius. Here comes to our first point, verse um, 1 of uh, chapter 10. We heard earlier the story, so I'm going to give a kind of snapshot overview. Um, Run with me. Do cast your eyes down, because I can't obviously read lots of the passage, but you'll you'll see where we're heading. Here we see God is preparing uh, to introduce the good news of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. And in his kindness, he does it through this man, Cornelius. Um, We see he's not a Jew. In God's kindness, he's not a Jew, but he is God-fearing. Therefore, respected by the Jews. Uh, he, by that term, he's, he, he's basically attracted to the monotheism of Judaism. He probably went to the synagogue. And we see, uh, stated there, he gave money. But he wasn't a Christian. That, that's obvious because of all that comes. All the stuff that follows. It demonstrates that God is preparing Cornelius for the reception of the gospel. The people uh, being sent to find Peter, the long trips to and fro, the angels, the visions. It all points to the fact that Cornelius is not a Christian, but he's being prepared for the reception of the gospel. In all these circumstances, God is working to bring that saving good news to this man, Cornelius, and then on to the nations of the world. I guess a good question to ask is, how did God prepare you? How did God prepare you for the reception of the gospel? Maybe I need to ask, how is he preparing you right now? See, just because you may be ignoring God, doesn't mean he's been ignoring you. You have to ask yourselves, and I look back at my life and say, why did certain things happen to me at certain times in my my life? Really difficult stuff sometimes. Suffering, pain. Why the, the problems and the, maybe the relationship issues or, or lack of relationship? And why that particular sin that I just can't get out of my head? See, that doesn't take away my responsibility for that particular sin. But that is to say, in all of these circumstances, as we see in Cornelius' life, all of them are under God's sovereign control. And he can use them. And does use them to prepare us for the reception of the gospel. And to make us more like Jesus. But what is the big point of this section? I think the big point is this. That even people like Cornelius, that is upright citizens, nice chaps, guys you go out for a beer with. You know, or ladies for a wine, or whatever you do. Um, You know, even the most religious of folks. The good church going people, middle class Britain. You know, even they need to hear the gospel. They need to repent and be forgiven. And ultimately, God must prepare all of us for the reception of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And for some of us, he has worked that miracle in our lives already. Note it's a miracle. But for some of us, we are a work in progress. Praise God for that work. 
Implication, I guess we all should want, if we're Christians here certainly, to be involved in that sovereign work of God. It's an exciting work, isn't it? And we need to get alongside as many non-Christians as we possibly can, love them, help God, be part of that means to prepare them for the reception of the gospel. So that's our first point. God prepared Cornelius to hear the good news. Secondly, God prepared Peter to preach the good news. Let's just flick back. I hope you see why. Go back to uh, chapter 9, verse uh, 32. You see in that last section of chapter 9, Peter leaves a kind of bit of a... Yeah, you'll, you can follow it on there. You see where they are anyway. Um, he leaves Jerusalem, heads northwest to Lydda. Um, you see there. Um, up a little bit. I don't know what the mileage is. It's about 20, 30 miles, there we go. Um, up to Lydda, and then on to Joppa and the coast. Uh, Peter heals Aeneas and Lydda, as a result, many turn to the Lord. You see that in verse 37 in the region. In Joppa, word gets around. Peter's done these amazing things. Um, and then you get to this woman, Tabitha, or Dorcas as translated. She's died, and people send for Peter. Do you hear how extraordinary that is? Someone's died, and they send for a bloke. Why? I mean... clearly they had the faith in Peter for him to be able to do something for someone who's dead. That is extraordinary, isn't it? Of what they must perceive as the power in in the Apostle Peter. Peter prayed, we see. She got up and many people believed in the Lord. And it's not just in him, but it's, it's in the resurrection power of the Lord. Because that is what's going on. But behind this amazing resurrection miracle, do you see what's happening? God is drawing Peter away from Jerusalem to preach the good news to now mixed groups. And and the further he goes west, the more mixed those groups are, the more Gentile they become. God was preparing Peter to preach the good news clearly. And we see this in this amazing vision that begins... In chapter 10, verse 9, move on, uh, cast your eyes down there. He's now preparing him to preach to all nations. It's an extraordinary vision, isn't it? We don't have time. It's this large sheep comes down, animals on it, verse 12. And there's instruction for Peter to kill and to eat. South Africans must love that. Um, it points to the promise of God that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, God is preparing Peter here to view the whole world as needing the gospel. And you see there, do do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Verse 15 is there pointing us back, of course, to Mark 7. Same words of Jesus there, very close there. Where Jesus had made the same point. Why? Because he was then going to go on to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. It's the same kind of thing that's happening. And God here is fulfilling his promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And what had not sunk in with the apostles through the ministry of Jesus, recorded in Mark 7... He's now preparing Peter to go to the Gentiles uh, to fulfill those promises that he made through Abraham to preach the gospel and deliver it to both Jew and Gentile. So again, I, I guess we need to ask from this, how is God preparing you? He is all the time, isn't he? Because you're in a job, you live in a particular house, on a particular road, you have particular neighbours, you go to a particular gym. You see people all the time. You go to this church, you're in a particular family for a reason. To make the good news of Jesus Christ dwell in you, absolutely. To transform you, to guide you. But also to make that good news known 
to those around you. God has prepared you for that privilege. And we need to seize every opportunity that he provides for us. As Peter does here in obedience. Thirdly, God's spirit brought salvation only through the good news. So we get to the story. Eventually Peter catches up with Cornelius. We kind of jumped on a bit there. Gets to Cornelius' house. There's not a picture there, but Caesarea is a bit further up the coast. You'll get that. I think there's another picture coming up later. Peter is prepared for his ministry now to both Jew and Gentile. You see that in verse 34 and 35, if you want to have a look down at that. Peter reminds Cornelius of firstly John the Baptist ministry in that preparing ministry, but then secondly in Jesus' ministry. And in verse 39, he begins to state his authority in that ministry. In his ministry of proclaiming Christ. Look at verse 39. I just want to read these verses again. I think they're very, very helpful. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and and Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to, uh, to the people and to testify that... He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify, testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, can anyone uh, keep these people from being baptised with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. Now, let's be realistic. Some of these circumstances that we're reading about here are utterly unique within the history of God. Working with his people. God is bringing in his new covenant kingdom here. And in any juncture in God working amongst his people, you know, a big movement of God is always paralleled with kind of signs and wonders to confirm that work of God. Cornelius is possibly one of the first Gentile Christians. Now, it could be the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8, if you remember that. But here we see a whole group of Gentiles who accepted the good news of Jesus. And this confirming experience of the Holy Spirit being given here is, do you see what's happening? It's purposely being paralleled, isn't it? To Acts 2 and the gift of the, um, the Spirit at Pentecost. He's purposely sort of saying to the, to the apostles here, hey look, when the Spirit came on you and the Jews in Jerusalem, that was the authentic um, kind of sign that God was working, that this was him. Now, the same is true for the Gentiles. It's a confirming experience. They can see this is authentic. But the most important aspect of this section is that God brought the salvation to the Gentiles through one means. And that is through the good news about Jesus Christ. The gospel is central to everything and everyone. Look at verse 43. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him puts their faith in the good news about him, that is what it's saying, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what do we learn here as Christians? 
I, I just want to say, be confident in the gospel. There is one means by which the people we know will be saved for heaven, from hell. And that is through the proclamation of the gospel and then then turning to God. So be confident in the gospel. Secondly, it's a kind of subset of that, know the gospel. Know it. If it is the only way to be saved, then as as Peter himself later writes in a letter, 1 Peter 3 verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer. And with graciousness and respect. And I guess from this also, we ought to say, be humbly committed to bring people to Christ. Peter goes all all everywhere, doesn't he? To find someone and and bring them to Christ. But notice also in verse 26, he meets a Roman centurion, a man of great power and authority. And look what he says. The centurion bows down. And what does he say? I am only a man myself. There's a great humility to him there, isn't there? But he humbly presents the gospel wherever he can. I'd love to say to you, whoever you are, however young a Christian you are, don't say that's not my job. Or that's just for the elders or the the home group leaders. People have been Christians for three years. No. Always be prepared as Peter is here. With clarity and simplicity, gentleness and respect... Share the saving gospel message with others. Why don't you try it tonight? Maybe in the pub, maybe when you get home with your housemate or your wife or your husband. Why don't you just try and share the gospel for 60 seconds, two minutes, three minutes? Just try and succinctly, lovingly practice. It's a great thing to try. Thirdly, God's Spirit brought salvation only through the good news. Fourthly, the Apostles' response to this good news. It's very interesting, lots to learn here. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, just cast your eyes down there. The Apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticised him and said, You went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them, precisely as it had happened. And you might think, might you, their initial response, it's a little bit harsh. I sort of say, cool down, boys. You know, this has gone a bit too far, don't you think? Seemed a bit cynical, a bit slow to understand that God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham with his inclusion of the Gentiles. But I want to say, yes, it's there. But I also want to say, I think there's a due diligence that they make. There's, there's care here. See, they are the witnesses and the, the proclaimers of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ that brings new life for heaven. It would be inappropriate, wouldn't it, if they weren't to wanting to protect that message. I think we do well to follow their example. And it's why here at Christians also we spend time teaching and trying to make the message of the Bible clear in home groups here on a Sunday. We don't want to distort it. We want to preserve it. And the apostles were careful in their preservation of that gospel message. But they were also teachable. That is, they demonstrate a humility under God. For as Peter explains, we see in verse 4, they realise this is authentic. The, the, The Spirit has come now to Gentiles. This is God's work. They're teachable. They they show a humility. 
I guess we do well to follow their example here too. Even when we feel the cultural jar of the Bible speaking to us. You know what I mean by that? Culture says one thing. Your friends at the office say one thing. Yet the Bible says something else. And the two jar. I guess we need to be teachable by God through his word and his spirit. To see that what God wants for us is for our good and for his glory. Are you teachable? (coughs) The apostles really, they're very quick to change here. They humbly accept God's work and his word. Jesus is a great example of that, isn't he? Who humbly accepted the will of his father in the garden, not my will but yours. Lastly, I think they responded in this way. Look at verse 18 of of chapter 11. When they heard this, they they had no further objections. And they praised God. Saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. They praise God. There's joy there, isn't there? And they say, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. This is how the gospel came to us. We're the Gentiles of Earlsfield, if you like. But repentance unto life, life eternal, I guess that's something to be praising God about, something to be joyful about, however we want to express that. If you're not a Christian here, it's great you're here. I just question, do you know that deep-seated, contented joy that someone knows when they're safe in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that? I hope you do one day. Even though the Christian faith has its focal point of the cross, which is a brutal thing, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that even there, there is joy? We looked at that, didn't we, in the prayer meeting just last week, um, sorry, 10 days ago. Hebrews 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Understand the message of the gospel and respond with joy. Fifthly, the expansive reach of the good news. Uh, Now we're going to verse 19 of chapter 11. So we see not only Cornelius is converted, but other Gentiles too. Um, You see there in verse 19 that after the persecution, um, following Stephen's stoning there, um, Stephen's death, um, all sorts of things go on there. But now other Gentiles are being converted because of the persecution, the scattering of all those people. Jewish Christians scattered as far away as Phoenicia, Cyprus, there we go, got a little bigger map now, Cyprus and Antioch in verse 19. Mostly preaching to Jews we see, uh, but now some to Gentiles that went down to, uh, the Greeks went into Antioch there. And we see, verse 21, many were saved. I want to note a few things, in fact I want to, want, I want to want, note one thing many times. God is sovereign. We see that because this only occurred, this spreading of the gospel to the other nations, to, to Phoenicia and all those, uh, Antioch and Cyprus, it only occurred after the persecution and the scattering of God's people after Stephen's death. See, God can use any situation in your life, in these lives. God can use any situation. For his glory and to grow his church. God is sovereign. God is sovereign again. We see that. Do you remember Paul when he was converted back in chapter 9? On the road to Damascus. Verse 15. It was made clear to Ananias through, a vision, uh, through an angel. sorry, That Paul was to be appointed to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Huh? Yeah? 
And here is where it is all happening. It's all coming to God's sovereign plan. Paul spends a year in Antioch with Barnabas. The church grew. This is where the disciples were first called Christians. You'd know that in verse 26. They weren't called Christians before. They were called followers, disciples. Now they're called Christians. But this growth becomes a foundation for the expansion of the church into the Gentile world, which one day reached our shores and reached Ellsfield. The promise of God to Abraham is now being fulfilled in the message of Christ through the messengers of Christ. And it was reaching all nations for the glory of God and the extension of his kingdom. See, God's plan will not fail. Never. He is sovereign, utterly. And we see that ever more clearly as we close in chapter 12. In our last point, the sovereignty of God in making the good news known. I'm going to summarise this point in uh, this chapter in, I think, 30 seconds. Here we go. If you haven't read it, please read it tonight. But it goes a bit like this. Herod had James, that is John's brother, killed. He gets Peter arrested at the beginning. Okay? But God is sovereign. And so he allows Peter, miraculously, it's a great story of escaping from jail and turning up at the house. Woo, craziness. It's all a bit amazing. And Peter's released and Herod is killed. But turn to verse 24, because this is the key, if you like, to the whole of this section. The word of God continued to increase and spread. God liberates the prisoner, Peter, and kills the king and gets the gospel out. One scholar put it this way, I put it down there. God buries the worker, but the work still goes on. It's brilliant, isn't it? That is, he will not fail in his plan plan to bring the gospel to all nations. He just will not fail. He's sovereign over all things. I just go, to finish, whose side do you want to be on? God always wins. Therefore, we should look forward to opportunities to share the gospel with our friends at every moment, especially as Christmas comes, comes along. And not in fear, but in just... Faithful anticipation. How do we do that? Because I know what you feel like, and I know what I feel like when you're going to go up to somebody. You're going to a carol service, you know. You oh my goodness, please don't shout at me. Um, there's a sense of trepidation there, isn't there? How do you do it in faithful anticipation? I think you cast your eyes back. I think you cast your eyes back to God's great plan of salvation, promised through Abraham, shown in history through Acts. And you need to also cast your eyes forward to Revelation 7, the great multitude around the throne, praising God from all nations. God's great plan for the nations includes you and me. We are the means by which this great plan will come to fruition. And that is the universal scope of the gospel. That is that we, God's people, will make his good news known. And many people will come to Christ and be part of that great multitude, praising God forever. Let's pray. Maybe just a moment to think and pray for someone, some people that we know and we love, who we'd love the good news to come to,
and for them to turn and ask for forgiveness. Acts chapter 11 verse 18. So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises. We've seen your sovereign uh, work uh, throughout Acts, throughout the whole Bible. And we trust that Revelation 7 is true. And that one day we will be gathered around your throne praising you with great multitudes from every nation. So please we pray. May it be true as we read in chapter 12 of Acts that the word of God will continue to increase and spread in Ellsfield for your glory. Amen. Amen.